before we go into Acts, uh, what I'd like you to do is to turn back into the Old Testament, and we're going to go through the proverb of the day, starting with Proverbs 26, 28. And like always, I try to tie in the proverb of the day with the scripture that we're going through in the New Testament. So Proverbs 26, 28. It says, a lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. A lying tongue. When somebody lies about somebody else, the design is really a hatred for that person. You're trying to put that person in a bad light. You're trying to harm that person. So a lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. If you look in the dictionary under flattery, flattery is not a good thing. It's a way to make you feel a certain way so the person can get something from you. And also Proverbs 29, verse 5. One verse. It says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Now, especially in those days, before tranquilizer guns and uh, you know, gunpowder and all that stuff, to catch an animal or a bird, they would use these elaborate net systems. Okay, they would trap the animal using a net. And what he's saying here is a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So if you're, if you're trying to flatter your neighbor, usually you're trying to get something out of them. You're trying to trap them. You're trying to put them in a position where you can take advantage of them. Now, Aesop's fables, um, there was one really neat fable that I, it was sticking in my mind as, as I was studying this, and I had to share it with you. How many of you heard of Aesop's fable, The Fox and the Crow? Only one person, few people. This is a, uh, a fable where the fox, he's you know, prowling around on the ground, and the, the fox is always looked at as like clever and witty and conniving. And a crow sees a nice wedge of cheese. So the crow picks up the piece of cheese and goes up to the branch with that cheese to eat it. And the fox is looking up, and he really wants that piece of cheese. So he tries to devise a plan to get the cheese, and he starts to flatter the crow. He says that you are the king of all the birds and you are such a majestic creature. And he says, I bet if you were to sing, you know, it would be such a, a beautiful sound, a melodious tune. So what happens is the fox is working on the ego, if there is such a thing, of the crow. And the crow starts to fall for it. As soon as the crow opens her mouth to sing, she drops the piece of cheese and the fox makes off with the cheese. So there you have really one of the, a perfect example of flattery. For us, our application is if someone's flattering you a lot, they probably want something from you, and probably we should not say things that we don't really mean, just to get something. But the last time we saw the Apostle Paul, going back to Acts, his defense before the Sanhedrin or the council, and today we're going to see his defense before the Roman governor Felix. And where we left off was this plot. Forty assassins vowed, we won't eat or drink until we have killed Paul. Uh, he comes to the ears of the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, and he devises a plan to safely get Paul out at night from Jerusalem to keep him safe with a contingent of forces and send him to the, the then governor, Felix, with a letter also explaining the events that took place. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, starting with verse 23. And he, the Roman commander, called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 
and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to, the, to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him worthy of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and they delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So this plan was to get Paul safely to Governor Felix so that he, Governor Felix could rule on the matter. In essence, Paul was really a hot potato. Okay, whoever had Paul had a problem. Actually, his very presence caused agitation in some people. But, you know, Paul was a no-nonsense type of guy. He stood firmly on the word of God, and that naturally will cause agitation in some others. Now, the plan entailed this, to go from Jerusalem to Antipatris, which was about 40 miles away, and if safely they got Paul to Antipatris, 400 of the soldiers could retreat back to probably the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, and the other 70 horsemen could take Paul all the way to Caesarea. And the reason being is, if you understand the terrain, uh, once you got to Antipatris, you were mostly safe. Because that journey, there was um, uh, opportunities for ambush of the Roman soldiers. So they had, uh, you know, a great amount of force to be able to repel an ambush if possible. So again, remember, when you read the Bible, you're also going back into history. All this stuff can be verified through uh, ge geographic uh, and historical sources. From there, they would take Paul another 20 miles with the 70 horsemen to Caesarea, which was the capital of Judea. More specifically, to Herod's palace which was the headquarters for Roman governors of Judea. Now, in these next few verses, you've got to picture a courtroom-style setting. So here's the, the charges, so to speak, against Paul. Verse 34. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he, meaning Paul, was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, or the headquarters. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. So you have Ananias, the elders, Tertullus, who is an orator or some type of lawyer. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, the word is heretoros, which is where in the English we get the word rhetoric from. So this guy was their uh, public relations guy, propagandist, sort of prosecutor in a sense. And from a worldly standpoint, Paul doesn't stand a chance. To make matters worse, the opposing side used flattery on the governor. Now, I'm going to read a little bit about uh, Governor Felix. He was not a good man. So they were certainly trying to flatter him so that he would side with them in this matter. The governor, Antonius Felix, ruled from A.D. 52 through A.D. 59. 
Very interesting story about this man. Uh, I believe it was the first time in Roman history. He was a former slave, Felix, and he was elevated to a position of governorship. Now, he was elevated by Nero, Caesar, but on the advice of uh, Felix's brother, Pallas, who was very popular in the Roman community. So this really would have been a, a, a great rags-to-riches story, so to speak, literally, had it not been for the wickedness of Felix. The Roman historian Tacitus spoke very ill of Felix because Felix, he dealt with the robbers. He dealt with corruption. But when it was okay for him and expedient for him, he was, he was allowing this corruption to happen under his rule. When I was doing this study, I was reminded of the New York governor, Elliot Spitzer. And what's interesting about him is his own political party, they didn't try to help him. He was the guy who... Uh, was with the prostitutes, and he was, you know, obviously in shame, had to come down from being a governor. But what's interesting is the reason why no one had sympathy for him is because he came in as the law and order governor of New York. He was going to clean up New York, Wall Street, the whole deal. So that when, he, when they found out that he was being a hypocrite, nobody had sympathy for the man. But going back to Felix, revolts increased under his rule, and eventually he was recalled to Rome because of a major blunder at Caesarea. Verse 5, now we'll get into the meat of the story. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by, and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him, you yourself may ascertain that all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. These were the charges against Paul. Number one, it was personal. This man is a plague. He's a pestilence. He's a problem. The second charge was it was criminal. He led an illegal sect. Now, the Romans, if you wanted to start a new religion, you had to go through the Roman government, and they had to assent to it. Now, uh, Christianity, for the most part, was looked at as an outcropping of Judaism. So a lot of the rules up until this point were in favor of the Christians because they figured it was just a part of Judaism. They just believe in the Messiah. The third charge against Paul was that he's profane. He's an irreligious man. So they try to figure they're going to overcharge him in this prosecution and hopefully that something, something will stick to the guy and they'll take him away. Because the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews all were religious people. So to level of the charge of being irreligious or profaning the temple, they would hope would incite some type of emotional feelings against Paul. Now, we saw in Proverbs 18.13 and 18.17, which we've covered in the past, that anything can sound good if there's only one side weighing in. And if you've never read this before and you read this, you might think, this guy's the apostle. He's a pretty bad guy. But understand, you're only hearing one side of the story. Verse 5. He said he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, that would have been, on first glance, what's, you know, so he's a, the sect of the Nazarenes. But if you really understand that culture and, and the words that are underlying, it's inflammatory. The word Nazarene or the way or Christian, a lot of times were leveled in a derogatory sense. The word sect is the word hereseos in the Greek, which is where we get the English word heresy. So it's not a good word that's being used. And two, Nazarenes. Nazarenes were from Nazareth, and Nazareth was in Galilee. And Galilee, when we went into the Gospel of Luke, there was a, a bigotry against the Galileans. They were different people. Um, and there's a whole history behind that. As a matter of fact, when 
uh, Philip said to Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He was talking about Jesus. Nathaniel, before he became a, a disciple, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So you see, there's a prejudice. Without even knowing who Jesus was, because of where he came from, there was a prejudice against him. So you see these charges leveled at Paul. Verse 7, pretty much the commander took Paul away from us with great, great violence. They're trying to put Lysias in a bad light, who wasn't there to defend himself. Basically, he should have let us handle this. This is our matter. This guy really had no business to do this. And, of course, they had to tread on this lightly because he was a Roman commander. And what was conveniently left out was the fact that they were going to tear him apart if left to them. Verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me of. Paul's defense. He wasn't flattering Felix. He was just providing the facts. Paul didn't need to plead the fifth. He didn't need the dream team. He didn't need to get the best lawyers in Rome to defend him. He had the best legal team available, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's the law firm for me. Jesus even said, do not worry about the time when they drag you before courts and kings and rulers to answer for what you believe, because in that time, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. And you may find yourself in an adversarial position in life. You may find yourself against in a position where there are some that are eloquent of speech. They're good orators. They're good at... Um, you know, making things up about you or taking some of what you say and twisting it. And boy, you're having a hard time now. And in those times, you may have the, the, you know, you want to defend yourself, but you also may find yourself, you know what, I just can't, it's me against them and they're just too good. And you just have to trust the Lord in those situations. And all of us will run into it. Could be at work, could be in the church, it could be um, in a family situation. And you'll have these issues that are happening to you. You know, if um, Bill turns around and looks at Arnie back there and he, he spreads around every day or every week that Arnie did something, that Arnie ripped him off, after a while, some people are going to start to believe that story. You see where I'm going with this? And Bill, I know Bill wouldn't do that, but it's just a hypothetical situation. And, you know, you may have people around you that will look at you in a bad light and say, gee, I wonder if that's true. And again, you may have to throw your hands up at some point and say, you know what, Lord, you're going to have to defend me. If you watch, Paul didn't even flatter Felix. He didn't do what the other side did. He said, you've been a judge for a while, and that's true. And then he went, listen, I just want to defend myself. Okay? Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all the things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Verse 14. I believe, Paul says, in the Messiah, in Yeshua, who came and fulfilled the prophecies. Now understand this, that the belief in the gospel message comes from well over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, that Jesus fulfilled, and also Jesus fulfilled the law. And we might ask ourselves, well, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to destroy them. How does that work? 
Well, starting from Genesis 3, you could already see right in the first book of the Bible, which uh, pretty much everybody follows, you can see right there those prophecies starting well over uh, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years prior to the first century. Okay? Then you go all the way up through the prophecies that speak about Jesus to come, the time period that he would come, the family line that he would come from, uh, and all manner of his life and death. Now, the other one that's uh, a little interesting is how did Jesus fulfill the law? Well, Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was a guardian to bring us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith. And you may say, well, in the Old Testament, wasn't the keeping of the law or the, you know, the strict adherence to the law make them righteous? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, righteousness was imputed to him because of his faith in the promises of God. This was before Mosaic law. So how was Abraham justified? By faith. In the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. And the last thing is the law said that because if you, if you sin, you'll die. And if you don't have a strict adherence to the Lord, there's no hope for you. Okay, that's why the, the sacrifices had to be uh, implemented. So how did Jesus fulfill the law? Because the law said the sinner will die. But a sacrifice will be made to cover that sin so that that sinner doesn't die eternally. And Jesus came to fulfill the law in the sense that he followed the law completely, but also he was that sacrifice that if, if he wasn't there, the law would condemn us to death. So you see how the law and, and the prophets were fulfilled. Belief in the resurrection of the dead was not new because of Christianity. Again, Daniel, uh, Daniel 12, chapter 12, verse 2 says that many will arise, okay, the resurrection, and many will uh, arise to everlasting righteousness and, and contentment, and some will rise to, many will rise to everlasting shame and contempt. So the Bible says, even in the Old Testament, that everyone's going to rise, everyone's going to be resurrected, but you're only, you can only fall into one or two categories, judgment and damnation and condemnation, or everlasting um, righteousness. So... And we have that choice, which one of those two categories we want to fall into. And in verse 15, Paul says, My hope in God, really which comes from the word of God, points to the resurrection of the dead. And in verse 16, Paul says this, I strive to have a conscience without offense. The conscience again. If you weren't here last Sunday, I strongly suggest that you get last Sunday's message either on the CD or download it from the website because we spoke all about the conscience. What is our conscience? What does our conscience do for us? What does it mean when we have a guilty conscience? And what's an aberrant conscience? So that whole thing about the conscience was spoken about last Sunday. But Paul strove to have a good conscience without offense and a good conscience before God and men. And that's the first step. I've said this before. If you have a good conscience, it doesn't mean everyone has to agree with what you do, but if you have a good conscience before God and you're trying to live a clean life, and you have a good conscience before your brothers and sisters uh, or people of the world, then that's really the open door for the gospel to go forth. And that's what Paul's foundation was, that good conscience so that he could share the gospel with those people. Verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a multitude nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. 
unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So Paul's saying here is the reason I'm here, let's make no mistake, take away the smokescreen, it's a doctrinal issue. I didn't do anything wrong. There's a doctrinal issue here. I'm being persecuted because of my strong belief in the Messiah and his resurrection. As a matter of fact, it was only 12 days since I've been here. What, what, kind of, what could I have stirred up in 12 days? And this is what I was found doing. The first thing, Paul was practicing true religion. The first thing, I was giving my offering to the, the Jews in the Jerusalem church. The Jewish people, the Jewish believers in the Jew, Jerusalem church were hit hard by the famine. So Paul came to give this, this big offering from the Gentile churches to bring it back to Jerusalem and offer it to them for some aid and help. The second thing that he did was, I was honoring the law. He was um, <clears throat> observing a Nazarite vow, which was a three or four day observance. Uh, and the, fourth thing, or the third thing I did was I was praying in the temple. He's saying to them, listen, I can account for all my time that I've been here in the last 12 days. But you've heard the expression, you can't please everyone. Well, it did seem when you follow the Apostle Paul's life that he couldn't please anyone, <laughs> you know. And um, it's interesting because you, you maybe if you're not familiar with the Bible or you're not really familiar with Acts or Paul's letters, you see the Apostle Paul. And in churches, they talk about the Apostle Paul and you have this really lofty vision of the Apostle Paul. But Paul had a lot of trouble in his life. And Paul just had to go with his convictions because he wasn't going to please everyone. Verse 19 he says to them, you have no proof of these charges, and furthermore, where are my accusers? They're not here. And according to Roman and Jewish law, there was no basis for a prosecution by proxy. His accusers had to be there to present the case against him. And furthermore, what did you guys see me doing? Is there anything that you can speak about that you saw me doing when you caught up with me that was wrong or profaning? Or, you know, tell the governor, what did I do? And again, it was all because he resisted or they resisted the doctrine of the resurrection and they didn't want that doctrine to spread. And you see that today, too, the doctrine of the resurrection, <clears throat> the doctrine of following the Old Testament, following the Old Testament prophecies and pointing to the Messiah. And even in some Christian churches, you know, their thing is it could be the latest book or the, the latest events that the church is doing. But everything but the word of God is being preached from the pulpit. And as a matter of fact, there was a study that came out, and I'm recalling it. It was a high number. I believe it was, it could have been over 50% of preachers in the United States started not to believe in the resurrection, the virgin birth. I mean, these are the, the deity of Christ. These are the hallmarks of the Christian faith. So what are they doing on Sunday is what I'd like to ask. And if you came into their church and said to the pastor, the resurrection, the deity of Christ, the word of God, where is it? You might cause a little kerfuffle there. You might cause the same type of problem that's going on here with Paul and these religious leaders. Verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and not to let him have liberty. Or I'm sorry, and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for on that visit to him. So two more characteristics of Governor Felix, according to the history and according to the scripture, is Felix made some bad decisions, and he was a big procrastinator. If it was a, a difficult decision, he, he didn't make a decision. He would put it off, and that's what he's doing here, indecisiveness. And what he did was he deferred this judgment on Paul long enough to pass him to the next governor. 
And in verse 23, we see that Paul was under house arrest, but he had free reign. And here, Paul was able to write the prison epistles. He was able to write doctrinal works. God kind of slowed him down and allowed him to be in this spot so that he could collect his thoughts, be in prayer, and do probably more for the church for, you know, in the future, like us, than he could running around the, the Middle East. You see what I'm saying? And it's just, it shows God's sovereignty. He able, he's able to maybe remove some so others will rise up and uh, fill in those blanks. Uh, when Elijah was taken away, Elisha really uh, went forward as a prophet of God. But Elisha followed Elijah. And when uh, Elijah was taken away in those chariots of fire, Elisha moved in and took prominence on the scene. I even think of our missionary, Stephen, in Guatemala. Uh, when he was persecuted by the local authorities and he was taken out of the loop, he was this young kid, young, tall, skinny kid from America coming to, down to the Guatemalan people, bringing them money, teaching them how to, you know, uh, you know to, to do things, building projects for them. And all he did was give to these people. And once the local authorities took him out and they arrested him and took him out of the scene, there was an amazing, um, I keep getting the information from his father, there was an amazing uh, groundswell support for him. The mayor rose up and said, hey, this is a good kid. He's helped our people. The, uh, the minister of uh, human health services also wrote a letter. So you had all these people rising up in Guatemala saying, this guy really emulated what Jesus was all about. And they all came out of the woodwork to support him and to carry on the work that Stephen started. They're pretty amazing stuff. Verse 24. And after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a con convenient time, I will call for you. So Felix comes to the Apostle Paul with his wife, Drusilla, and they're curious about the Messiah. Now, there's an interesting family tree with Drusilla, but Herod Antipas uh, did the same thing with John the Baptist. He had him in prison, and before he took his life, he would visit John and talk to him about spiritual things. Interesting. And then he made this foolish vow and had to kill uh, John the Baptist. Uh, Herod Antipas did the same thing with Jesus. When uh, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, because <laughs> Jesus was also a hot potato, nobody wanted to deal with him, so Pilate sent him to Herod, and Herod wanted Jesus to do some tricks for him. And when he didn't you know, perform for him, he sent Jesus back to Pilate's district and Pilate had him executed. But Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who had James killed and who also died uh, um, by divine judgment in Acts chapter 12. And her great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who killed the Bethlehem babies. And her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist killed. So this was quite a family tree. You certainly wouldn't want to be part of this family, worse than the mob. But in verse 25, it, it almost seems like there's an interest here. Felix and Drusilla come to Paul, and they want to hear about this faith in Christ. Now, everything probably was going well until conviction happened. In John 16:8, Jesus says the same thing. The Holy Spirit will come into the world, and he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Paul kind of says the same thing here. Uh, he speaks about one, righteousness, two, self-control, and three, judgment. Let's go through those. One, righteousness. It's to be just or to be upright. It goes back to what Paul said in Acts 23. Okay? Um, Paul strove 
for that clear conscience. He strove to have a good testimony in front of others. Habakkuk 2.4 says the just shall live by faith. And what is justification? Justification is a positive action. That means that God, when you are, are repentant and you're asking forgiveness for your sins and you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in that moment you're declared righteous. It's a positive action. God declares you just and righteous. Okay? And righteousness is something, again, we should strive for because Paul strove for it. And the men of God and the women of God strove for that righteousness. You know, can I clean up my life? Is there anything that's outstanding? Is there any unrepentant sin in my life? Right? The second point, self-control. How well can you resist sin and temptation in the future? Now, Felix had a problem, and I'm sure as Paul was speaking, the conviction was there, and Felix was getting a little uncomfortable, a little hot under the collar, because Felix and Herod and other rulers had this awful practice of taking other men's wives. They would see a woman that they desired, and they would just do whatever. She could have still been married. They would take the woman to be their wife. Okay, so Herod did it. Felix practiced it with his present wife, and um, it wasn't a good thing. Self-control. I see it. I want it. I've got to have it. I don't care what it takes to get it. Whatever it is, that's what I want. Kind of sounds like our country today. Forget about the Ten Commandments. Forget about rules. Forget about morality. Let's throw off all yoke. I see something. I want it, whether it's another person, whether it's a promotion. I'll step on anybody I have to step on to get to the top. Whether it's, you name it, success, you know, your name in lights, whatever it is, whatever I see, regardless of right and wrong, I want it. Self-control. It's lacking in our society, big time. The third thing is judgment. Well, judgment's pretty scary. I'm sure this certainly was the, the nail in the coffin for Felix to say, okay, I've had enough. Go back to your prison cell, you know. Don't bother me for a while. Judgment is scary because every, everyone here will face judgment. If you're in Christ and your sins are forgiven because you're in Christ, you have no problem. If you're not, you have a problem, but there's still time. I had a very interesting, um, uh, let's see, a few weeks ago I went to a class. It was called the Alcatest class. And law enforcement, police officers go to this class every two years to get recertified. So if somebody comes in and, you know, they've been driving, they blow on the box, you do all these computer computations, and you have to have a certification. So I'm in the class, and I see, you know, there's all the police officers from different uh, areas. And I see an officer that I remember from my old days, 15 or so years ago, right? And we start talking, and, you know, I told him the path that I'm on. And it's funny because he said, wow, it's such a coincidence that we're here in the same class. Now, this guy's from another agency. It really was a coincidence, but it probably was a, a divine appointment. And he says, Joe, i got to tell you, on the break, and I had permission to say this. I called him up. On the break, he takes me aside and he says, I read the entire book of Revelation and I got so scared, I called my mother and said, Mom, I'm going to hell. I read the book of Revelation. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's take it down a few notches. It's good that you feel that way. It's good that you're convicted. But if you're in Christ, let's go back to the gospel now. Let's start at square one. If you're in Christ, you're not going to hell. <laughs> so he felt great at the end of the class, i got to tell you. And we got our certifications too. But <laughs> got to go back to basics. But the interesting thing is Felix, the man who had such power over Paul, Felix could have went like this, guards off with his head. Paul would have been done. Felix was afraid. He heard Paul speaking the oracles of God, and he had fear gripped his heart. It's pretty amazing how, what the power of God has in it. He was afraid of Paul's message. 
And you know what? Pontius Pilate, when he looked at Jesus, he said, don't you realize I have the power over your life or death? And Jesus goes, you'd have no power unless it was given to you by God. No one's ever talked to Pontius Pilate like that. He, he was the same thing. And his wife said, listen, I had a really bad dream about this Jesus guy. I have nothing to do with him. So I'm sure that Pilate was also shaking in his boots when Jesus came before him. Although, you know, people put up a tough exterior, but in their heart, they're thinking about stuff. The wheels are turning in there. Don't, don't underestimate the power of God. And in verse 25, Felix says to Paul, go your way. That's enough. It's getting too hot in here for me. You know, it's, this, is, this is too much right now. In his mind, he's probably thinking, I don't want to hear anymore. Get this guy out of here. Send him back to his cell. And it's true. It's too personal for me. It's too close to my heart. I'm getting a little uncomfortable. And you know what? It happens to Christians too. There are Christians who desire to go to a church where Sunday after Sunday they preach the nice message. What is the pastor going to say today that's flowery and happy for me to hear? Because I want to feel good when I leave church. But you know what? The Bible says that there's, there is conviction and then there's grace. One of my favorite sermons to teach, I've preached about 200 sermons. One of my favorite sermons that I taught, it was this year, was on grace. Grace is beautiful. Oh, when I talk about grace and the, the, the storehouses of treasures that come from the heavens because we're in Christ and our sins are forgiven and, and I can stand before my God and not cower in fear because he loves me. Grace is beautiful. But there's also conviction, okay? There's, it's, it's two sides to the same coin. And the good thing is a lot of times the conviction will lead us to where we need to be so that we can receive that grace. So, Felix, you know, go away. But the mere knowledge of truth isn't enough, and we're held accountable for the amount of spiritual light we receive. Luke 12:48. Even today, and you know, I talk to you here, but I'm finding more and more in the age of technology, people are coming up to me, and I'm, I'm being surprised. They're saying, I've heard those messages online. So as, as I speak, it's going online, it's going on CD. So whether it's somebody who's listening on the CD in the future, or online, or somebody here, the bottom line is you've received enough light in this message to know the truth. So don't, there's no sense in running now. You might as well stick it out. Jesus said in John 5, uh, 40, he said, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's a simple thing. It's a free gift. It's the gift of everlasting life. And Jesus gives it out freely. And Jesus says to those who don't want to, you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. And my question is, where are you today? Where are you today? Everybody here, where are you in your heart? Do you want to come to Jesus to have that life? And even if you are a Christian, has it been stale? Has your relationship been stale? Where are you? Where's your heart? Are you opening? Is this like a history lesson or something cool because you, you get to talk to your friends after service and you haven't seen somebody all week? Or are you, are you really letting the word of God sink into your heart? Just like that new section that we have on the bulletin. What is it that God's word can do to change my life this week? How can I allow it into my heart to change me? Where are you today? Verse 26, two more verses. Meanwhile, he also hoped, <laughs> Felix, hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. A few things. Another barrier to salvation. Felix wanted money. Paul tells the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, not money because it's a medium of exchange, 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Many are giving up eternal life for this paltry existence. I've been on this earth for 40 years. If Jesus doesn't come back soon, I probably have maybe another 40 years or so, so I'm about at the halfway point. But the point is, this is a paltry existence. I remember things that I did as a kid. It goes like that. Don't mortgage eternal life for this stinking life. It's really not worth it. Eternal life, gee, Felix, wherever he is, which he's probably not in a good place, he's been there for 2,000 years. I bet if he could go back, he'd love to change history. Okay? 2,000 years. What did he die? At 60, 70? Who knows? I think of the, the different soils. You know, the sower, Jesus talks about the sower. He throws the seed, the word of God, and falls on different soils. Sometimes it will fall on good soil, and, and the word of God will grow in the heart, and it will grow, and it will uh, develop a crop, and fruit will be produced. But there was one particular soil where the, the, the seed fell on the soil, and it grew. The word of God started to grow and become something. And the thorns also grew around it, and they grew up with the word of God. And what it did was it wrapped itself around this this vegetation and the thorns choked it and between it taking its nutrients and the thorns choking it it destroyed it you know what those thorns were those were materialism those were wealth those were the things of this world and unfortunately a lot of people's word of god you know uh, crop is being destroyed by the thorns of this world and unfortunately all felix could think about is gee i wonder if his friends will bring him an offering so that maybe he could give me a few bucks and for the right price i'll let him go what a shame. What a shame. And Felix also, very interesting in verse 27. Now, you can read the Bible, and, and some will say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. The Bible records history. Some men and women are replete with contradictions. It doesn't mean the Bible is a contradictory. Okay? It just means it's a commentary on history about the behavior of people. Felix probably was an anti-Semite. As a matter of fact, he botched the situation so bad in Caesarea between the Greeks and the Jews that he sent his troops to slaughter hundreds, scores of Jews. Okay, it was, it was a bloodbath for the Jews. Uh, and here he wants to do the Jews a favor. Here's a man of contradictions. And again, if you're not grounded in the word of God, you're going to be a person of contradictions. Well, if the Jews could do me a favor and they get off my back, I'm going to take care of them. But then when the, the time was right and he could get rid of them, he got rid of them. So here's a man who was a man of contradictions. And we know that in A.D. 60, uh, Felix was recalled to Rome and that thus ushered in Portius Festus. And we'll talk about him next week. But make no mistake, the Christian message has a kick to it. It has a bite. It's almost when you're eating a meal and you don't realize there's something hot and spicy in it. You take a bite and all of a sudden your eyes water. That's what the Christian message is designed to do. It's supposed to have a bite and a kick to it. There's supposed to be conviction in here. There's supposed to be a conscience pricking that goes on, whether it's of righteousness, it's of self-control, it's of repentance, it's of judgment. And unfortunately, you don't see a lot of that practice in society today. We worship hedonism, pleasure. It's all about pleasure. It's all about feeling good. It's all about getting the, the dopamine receptors going and the, the, the epinephrine, you know, the endorphins going, all that other kind of stuff. Whatever I have to do to get pleasure, and, it, and unfortunately, it... it it, that poison goes through into church too. Church is a place where you get the word of God. At times it makes you feel great. 
grace. I love that message. I still remember excerpts from it. And then there's going to be times where it's going to convict us and it's going to make us feel bad. But it's a good thing because that godly sorrow leads to, leads to repentance. So I just would want to say this in closing. If, you're in, if you don't know the Lord, this isn't something to take lightly. This isn't something that I'll eventually get to. Just like my wife tells me, you know, your office downstairs is papers all over. Clean it. Yeah, baby, I'll eventually get to it. When it comes to salvation, the Bible says today is the day. Now is the time for salvation. Okay? Jesus is available. And if we're believers, Sunday after Sunday, and there's no conviction, there's no repentance, and there's no change, we ought to take our two fingers and check our pulse because, you know what, we might be dead and we don't realize it. Jesus spoke to the church of Sardis, and he said, you have a name that, he spoke to a church, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And none of us ever wants to be in that category. So let's look at the word of God, let's meditate on it, let's pray, and see how the Lord can change our heart this week. Let's pray.